Chapter Two, Part One of the Works of Robert G. Ingersoll, Volume Ten, Ingersoll's Closing Address to the Jury in the First Star Route Trial, Part One of Seven. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Part One. CLOSING ADDRESS TO THE JURY IN THE FIRST STAR ROUTE TRIAL The most characteristic feature of the Star Route trial, which has been the central point of interest in our city for the past three months, was the marvelously powerful speech of Colonel Robert G. Ingersoll before the jury and judge last week. People who knew this gifted gentleman only superficially had supposed that he was merely superficial as a lawyer. While acknowledging his remarkable ability as an orator and his vast accomplishments as a speaker, they doubted the depth of his power. They heard him, and the doubt ceased. It can be said of Ingersoll, as was written of Castellar, that his eloquent utterances are as the finely fashioned ornamental designs upon the Damascus blade. The blade cuts as keenly, and the embellishments beautify without retarding its power. The following is Colonel Ingersoll's speech. Its swift incisiveness, keen and comprehensive logic, and apt deductions from proper premises are only equaled by the grand manner of its delivery, and under the circumstances incidental to the case and the routes to be traversed, by its expedition of action and brevity. Washington, D.C., the Capitol, September 16, 1882. May it please the court and gentlemen of the jury, let us understand each other at the very threshold. For one, I am as much opposed to official dishonesty as any man in this world. The taxes in this country are paid by labor and by industry and they should be collected and dispersed by integrity. The man that is untrue to his official oath, the man that is untrue to the position the people have honored him with, ought to be punished. I have not one word to say in defense of any man who I believe has robbed the treasury of the United States. I want it understood in the first place that we are not defending, that we are not excusing, that we are not endeavoring to palliate, in the slightest degree, dishonesty in any government official. I will go still further. I will not defend any citizen who has committed what I believe to be a fraud upon the treasury of this government. Let us understand each other at the commencement. You have been told that we are a demoralized people that the tide of dishonesty is rising, ready to sweep from one shore of our country to the other. You have been appealed to find innocent men guilty in order that the tide may be successfully resisted. You have been told, and I have heard the story a thousand times, that this country was demoralized by what the gentlemen are pleased to call the war, and that owing to the demoralization of the war, it is necessary to make an example of somebody that the country may take finally the road to honesty. We were in a war lasting four years. 
but I take this occasion to deny that that war demoralized the people of the United States. Whoever fights for the right, or whoever fights for what he believes to be right, does not demoralize himself. He ennobles himself. The war through which we passed did not demoralize the people. It was not a demoralization, it was a reformation. It was a period of moral enthusiasm, during which the people of the United States became a thousand times grander and nobler than they had ever been before. The effect of that war has been good, and only good. We were not demoralized by it. When we broke the shackles from four millions of men, women, and children, it did not demoralize us. When we changed the hut of the slave into the castle of the freeman, it did not demoralize us. When we put the protecting arm of the law about that hut and the flag of this nation above it, it was not very demoralizing. When we stopped stealing babes, the country did not suddenly become corrupted. That war was the noblest affirmation of humanity in the history of this world. We are a greater people, we are a grander people, than we were before that war. That war repealed statutes that had been made by robbery and theft. It made this country the home of man. We were not demoralized. There is another thing you have been told in order that you might find somebody guilty. You have been told that our country is distinguished among the nations of the world only for corruption. That is what you have been told. I care not who said it first. It makes no difference to me that it was quoted from a Republican senator. I deny it. This country is not distinguished for corruption. No true patriot believes it. This country is distinguished for something else. The credit of the United States is perfect. Its bonds are the highest in the world. Its promise is absolute pure gold. Is that the result of being distinguished for corruption? I have heard that nonsense, that intellectual rot, all my life, that the people used to be honest, but at present they are exceedingly bad. It is the capital stock of every prosecuting lawyer but in there is not one word of truth. Is this country distinguished only for its corruption throughout Europe? No, it is respected by every prince and by every king. It is loved by every peasant. Is it because we have such a reputation for corruption that a million people from foreign lands sought homes under our flag last year? Is corruption all we are distinguished for? Is it because we are a nation of rascals that the word America sheds light in every hut and in every tenement in Europe? Is it because we are distinguished for corruption that that one word America is the dawn of a career to every poor man in the old world? I always supposed that we were distinguished for free schools for free speech, for just laws, not for corruption. A country covered with schoolhouses, 
where the children of the poor are put upon an exact equality with those of the rich is not distinguished for corruption and yet in the name of this universal corruption you are appealed to become also corrupt this nation is substantially a hundred years old and today the assessed property of the united states is valued at fifty billion dollars is that the result of corruption or is it the result of labor of integrity and of virtue i deny that my country is distinguished for corruption i assert that it rises above the other nations distinguished for humanity as high as chimborazo above the plains never will i put a stain upon the forehead of my country in order that i may win some case and in order that i may consign some honest man to the penitentiary i stand here to deny that this is a corrupt country let me say that the only tribute that i ever heard paid to corruption was indirectly paid by mr merrick himself he told you that official corruption destroyed the french empire and upon the ruins of that empire arose the french republic he makes official corruption the father of french liberty if it works that way i hope they will have it in every monarchy on the globe napoleon stole something besides money he stole liberty and the french people finally got to that condition of mind where they preferred to be trampled on by germany rather than to have their liberty devoured by napoleon from that splendid sentiment sprang the french republic this country is the land not of slavery but of liberty not of unpaid toil but of successful industry there is not a poor man today in all europe or a poor boy who does not think about america i recollect one time in ireland that i met with a little fellow about ten years old with a couple of rags for pantaloons and a string for a suspender i said my little man what are you going to do when you grow up going to america it is the dream of every peasant in germany he will go to america not because it is the land of corruption but because it is the land of plenty the land of free schools the land where humanity is respected there is another thing about this country we have a king here and that king is the law that king is the legally expressed will of a majority and that law is your sovereign and mine you have no right to violate one law to carry out another we all stand equal before that law and the law must be upheld as an entirety and in no other way if in this case you believe these defendants beyond a doubt to be guilty it is your duty to find them so and you must find them so in order to preserve your own respect i do not agree with this prosecution in the idea that the perpetuity of the republic depends upon this verdict decide as badly as you please as horribly as you can the republic will stand in spite of this verdict and the republic will stand until people lose confidence in verdicts until they lose confidence in legal redress 
when the time comes that we have no confidence in courts and no confidence in juries then the great temple will lean to its fall and not until then as long as we can get redress in the courts as long as the laws shall be honestly administered as long as honesty and intelligence sit upon the bench as long as intelligence sits in the chairs of jurors this country will stand the law will be enforced and the law will be respected but so far as my clients are concerned everything they have everything they love everything for which they hope home friends wife children and that priceless something called reputation without which a man is simply living clay everything they have is at stake and everything depends upon your verdict i want you to understand that everything depends upon your decision and yet my clients with their world at stake home everything everything ask only at your hands the mercy of an honest verdict according to the evidence and according to the law that is all we ask and that we expect by an honest verdict i mean a verdict in accordance with the testimony and in accordance with the law a verdict that is a true and honest transcript of each juror's mind a verdict that is the honest result of this evidence whoever takes into consideration the desire or the supposed desire of the outside public is bribed whoever finds a verdict to please power whoever violates his conscience that he may be in accord or in supposed accord with an administration or with the government is bribed whoever finds a verdict that he may increase his own reputation is bribed whoever finds a verdict for fear that he will lose his reputation is bribed whoever bends to the public judgment whoever bows before the public press is bribed fear prejudice malice and the love of approbation bribe a thousand men where gold bribes one an honest verdict is the result not of fear but of courage not of prejudice but of candor not of malice but of kindness above all it is the result of a love of justice allow me to say right here that i believe every solitary man on this jury wishes to give a verdict exactly in accordance with this testimony and exactly in accordance with the law every man on this jury wishes to preserve his own manhood every man on this jury wishes to give an honest verdict there are no words sufficiently base to describe a man who will knowingly give a dishonest verdict i believe every man upon this jury to be absolutely honest in this case the mind of every juror like the needle to the pole should be governed simply by the evidence that needle is not disturbed by wind or wave and the mind of the honest juror never should be disturbed by clamor nor by prejudice nor by suspicion your minds should not be affected by the fume by the froth by the fiction 
or by the fury of this prosecution. You should pay attention simply to the evidence, and to use the language of one of my clients, you should be governed by the frozen facts. That is all you have any right to think of, and all you have any right to examine. Having now said thus much about the duties of jurors, let me say one word about the duties of lawyers. I believe it is the duty of a lawyer, no matter whether prosecuting or defending, to make the testimony as clear as he can. If there is anything contradictory, it is his business, if he possibly can, to make it clear. If there is any question of law about which there is a doubt, it is his right and it is his duty to give the court the result of his study and of his thoughts, for the purpose of enlightening the court upon that particular branch of law. No matter if he may believe the court understands it, if there is the slightest fear that the court does not or has forgotten it, it is his duty to bring the attention of the court to that law. It is not his duty to abuse anybody. It is not my duty to abuse anybody. There is no logic in abuse, not the slightest. And when a lawyer, under the pretext of explaining the evidence to the jury, calls a defendant a thief and a robber, he steps beyond the line of duty and in my judgment beyond the line of his privilege. What light does that throw upon the case? In his effort to explain the law to the court, what cloud does it remove from the intellectual horizon of his honor for the attorney to call the defendant a robber, a thief, or a pickpocket? I shall in this case give you what I believe to be the facts. I shall call your attention to the testimony. I shall endeavor to throw that light I am capable of throwing upon this entire question. I shall not deal in personalities. They are beneath me. I shall not deal in epithets. Nobody worth convincing can be convinced in that way. Now let us see what the law is, and let us see what our facts are. In the beginning of this dusty branch, I shall ask the pardon of every juror in advance for going over these facts once again. You see, they strike every man in a peculiar way. No two minds are exactly alike. No pair of eyes distinguish exactly the same object or the same peculiarities of the objects. This is an indictment under Section 5440 of the Revised Statutes and there must not be only a conspiracy to defraud, but there must be an overt act done in pursuance of that conspiracy for the purpose of effecting the object of it. Now then, how must these overt acts be stated in this indictment? Is the overt act a part of the crime, and must it be described with the same particularity that you describe the offense? Which of the overt acts set out in this indictment is the overt act depended upon, together with the act of conspiring, to make this offense? I hold, may it please your honor, that every overt act set out in the indictment must be proved exactly as it is alleged. 
no matter whether the description was necessary to be put in the indictment or not. No matter how foolish, how unnecessary the description, it must be substantiated, and it must be proven precisely as it is charged. No matter whether the particular thing described is of importance or not, no matter how infinitely unnecessary it was to speak of it, still, if it is a matter of description, it must be proven precisely as it is charged. Upon that subject, I wish to call the attention of the court to some authorities, and it will take me but a few moments. I will call the attention of the court, first, to the case of the State Against Noble, 15 Maine, 476. Here a man was indicted for fraudulently and willfully taking from the river and converting to his own use certain logs. These logs were described as marked W with a cross, and H with another cross, and with a girdle. Now it seems that a part of this mark was not found, according to the testimony upon the logs taken. The description of these logs in the indictment is the only way the logs could be distinguished, and could not be rejected as surplusage. It has been settled that if a man be indicted for stealing a black horse, and the evidence be that he stole a white one, he cannot be convicted. The description of a log by the mark is more essential than that of a horse by its color. If it was not necessary to describe the log so particularly by the mark, yet so having stated it, there can be no conviction without proof of it. Now, the court in deciding this says, It may be regarded as a general rule, both in criminal prosecutions and in civil actions, that an unnecessary averment may be rejected where enough remains to show that an offense has been committed, or that a cause of action exists. In Ricketts v. Solway, 2 Barn, and Aid, 360, Abbott, C.J., says, there is one exception, however, to this rule, which is, where the allegation contains matter of description. Then, if the proof given be different from the statement, the variance is fatal. As an illustration of this exception, Starkey puts the case of a man charged with stealing a black horse. The allegation of color is unnecessary, yet as it is descriptive of that, which is the subject matter of the charge, it cannot be rejected as surplusage, and the man convicted of stealing a white horse. The color is not essential to the offense of larceny, but it is made material to fix the identity of that which the accused is charged with stealing. 3. Stark, 1531. In the case before us, the subject matter is a pine log marked in a particular manner described. The marks determine the identity and are, therefore, matter purely of description. It would not be easy to adduce a stronger case of this character. It might have been sufficient to have stated that the defendant took a log merely, in the words of the statute, but under the charge of taking a pine log we are quite clear 
that the defendant could not be convicted of taking an oak or a birch log. The offense would be the same, but the charge to which the party was called to answer, and which it was incumbent on him to meet, is for taking a log of an entirely different description. The kind of timber and the artificial marks by which it was distinguished are descriptive parts of the subject matter of the charge which cannot be disregarded, although they may have been unnecessarily introduced. The log proved to have been taken was a different one from that charged in the indictment and the defendant could be legally called upon to answer only for taking the log there described. In our judgment, therefore, the jury were erroneously instructed that the marks might be rejected as surplusage, and the exceptions are accordingly sustained. I also cite the case of the State against Clark, 3 Foster, New Hampshire, 429. INDICTMENT FOR FRAUDULENTLY ALTERING THE ASSIGNMENT OF A MORTGAGE The indictment set forth the mortgage, and also the assignment, as it was alleged to have been originally made from Miles Burnham to Noah Clark, the respondent, and alleged that the assignment was signed, sealed, delivered, witnessed by two witnesses, and duly and legally recorded at length in the Registry of Deeds of Rockingham County on the 18th of September, 1844. It then alleged that this assignment was fraudulently altered on the 28th of June, 1844, by inserting the letter S in two places, between the words Noah and Clark, so that the assignment originally made to Noah Clark, after the alteration appeared as if it were made to Noah S. Clark, on trial, the records of deeds were produced, and there was found a record of the assignment purporting to be made to Noah S. Clark, the record bearing date September 18, 1844, but there was no record of any assignment to Noah Clark. The respondent's counsel objected that this evidence did not support the allegations of the indictment. The forgery was alleged to have been committed on the 28th of June, 1844, and the court admitted evidence that Miles Burnham, who executed the assignment, being applied to about the 30th of July, 1846, for a loan of money upon a mortgage of the same property, declined to make the loan unless he was satisfied there was no mortgage of conveyance of the land by Noah Clark and the person who drew the assignment searched the records with Burnham and found no such deed on record. This evidence was objected to, but was understood to be introductory to other material and pertinent evidence, and was therefore admitted. But no such other evidence, to which it was introductory, was offered. The jury found a verdict of guilty, which the defendant moved to set aside. Upon that, the court says, We are not able to look upon this statement that the deed was duly recorded as well as witnessed and acknowledged, according to the statute, in any other light than as part of the description of the deed and conveyance which the defendant was charged with altering. We are, therefore, of opinion that the evidence upon this point 
did not sustain the indictment. Now, if the statement that the mortgage was recorded was such a material part of the description that a failure to prove the record as charged was fatal, so I say, in these overt acts, if they charge that a thing was done or a paper filed on a certain day, and it turns out not to be so, that is a fatal variance, and under that description in the indictment the charge cannot be substantiated. I refer to the case against Northumberland, 46 New Hampshire, 158, and also to the King against Wenard, 6 Carrington and Payne, 586, Clark v. Commonwealth, 16b, Monroe, 213. The doctrine seems to have been well settled in England and this country that in criminal cases, although words merely formal in their character may be treated as surplusage and rejected as such, a descriptive averment in an indictment must be proved as laid, and no allegation, whether it be necessary or unnecessary, more or less particular, which is descriptive of the identity of what is legally essential to the charge in the indictment, can be rejected as surplusage. And in this case I cite Dorset's case, 5th Rogers Record, 77. On an indictment for coining, there was an alleged possession of a die made of iron and steel, when in fact it was made of zinc and antimony. The variance was deemed fatal. And yet it was not necessary to state of what the die was made. If the indictment had simply said he had in his possession this die, it would have been enough. But the pleader went on and described it saying it was made of iron and steel. It turned out upon the trial that it was made of zinc and antimony, and the variance was held to be fatal. So I cite the court to Wharton's American Criminal Law, 3rd edition, page 291, and to Roscoe on Criminal Evidence, 151. Now I cite the case of the United States against Foy, First Curtis's Circuit Court Reports, 368, and I do not think it will be easy to find a case going any further than this. It goes on to the end of the road. A letter containing money deposited in the mail for the purpose of ascertaining whether its contents were stolen on a particular route and actually sent on a post route is a letter intended to be sent by post within the meaning of the post office act this i understand was a decoy letter the description of the termini between which the letter was intended to be sent by post cannot be rejected as surplusage but must be proved as laid upon that the court says but a far more difficult question arises under the other part of the objection the indictment alleges not only that this letter was intended to be conveyed by post, but describes where it was to be conveyed, it fixes the termini as Georgetown and Ipswich. The allegation is, in substance, that the letter was intended to be conveyed by post from Georgetown to Ipswich. The question is 
whether the words from Georgetown to Ipswich can be treated as surplusage. It was necessary to allege that the letter was intended to be conveyed by post. The words from Georgetown to Ipswich are descriptive of this intent. They described more particularly that intent which it was necessary to allege. In United States v. Howard, 3 Sumner, 15, Mr. Justice Story lays down the following rule which we consider to be correct. No allegation, whether it be necessary or unnecessary, whether it be more or less particular, which is descriptive of the identity of that which is legally essential to the charge in the indictment, can ever be rejected as surplusage. Apply that rule to this case. It is legally essential to the charge to allege some intent to have the letter conveyed somewhere by post. Suppose the indictment had alleged an intent to have it conveyed between two places where no post office existed, and over a post route where no post road was established by law. Inasmuch as the court must take notice of the laws establishing post offices and post roads, the indictment would then have been bad, because this necessary allegation would, on its face, have been false. Words, therefore, which describe the termini and the route, and thus show what in particular was intended, do identify the intent, and show it to be such an intent as was capable in point of law of existing and we are obliged to conclude that they cannot be treated as surplusage, and must be proved substantially as laid. We are of opinion, therefore, that there was a variance between the indictment and the proof, and that for this cause a new trial should be granted. So I refer to the State v. Langley, 34th New Hampshire, 530. THE COURT I think, Colonel Ingersoll, there is no doubt about this doctrine. Mr. Ingersoll. I do not want any doubt about it. The Court. There cannot be. Mr. Ingersoll. Well, I will just read this, because I do not want any doubt about it in anybody's mind. The Court. I have no doubt about it. Mr. Ingersoll. Very well. If a recovery is to be had, it must be secundum allegata et probata, and the rule is one of entire inflexibility in respect to all such descriptive averments of material matters. The cases upon this point, many of which are collected in the case of State v. Cop, 15 New Hampshire, 2F5, are quite uniform. Now, if the court please, I not only read this with regard to the overt acts, but with regard to the description of the crime itself, the conspiracy. I will then refer to State against Cop, 15th New Hampshire. I will also refer to the case of Rex against Welpley, 4th Carrington and Payne, 132 to third Starkey on evidence, sections 1542 to 1544, inclusive, 
also to the United States against Denis and others, Third Wood, page 48, and a case under this exact section, 5440. It seems clear that the statute upon which this indictment is based is not intended to relieve the pleader from any supposed necessity of setting out the means agreed upon to carry out the conspiracy by requiring him to aver some overt act done in pursuance of the conspiracy and make such act a necessary ingredient of the offense. The court then refers to the Commonwealth against Shedd, 7th Cushing, 514, and continues. In that case it was different. That difficulty does not exist here, for the overt act is part of the offense and must be proved as laid in the indictment. So I find that the court passed upon this very question, and I wish to call the attention of the court again to one line on page 961 of the record in this case. But in all cases the principle is simply this, that where the act which was done in pursuance of the conspiracy is described in the indictment, it must be described with accuracy and completeness, and if there is a variance in the proof, it is fatal to the prosecution. When I come to that part as to the necessity of describing offenses, then I will cite the court to some other authorities in connection with these. Now, then, we have got it established, gentlemen of the jury. There is no longer any doubt about that law, and the court will so instruct you that wherever they set out in the indictment that we did a certain thing in pursuance of the conspiracy, they must prove that thing precisely as charged, no matter whether the description was necessary or unnecessary. They must prove precisely as they state. They wrote the indictment, and they wrote it knowing they must prove it, and if they wrote it badly, it is not the business of this jury to help them out of that dilemma. Now, as I say, we come to the dust and ashes of this case, the overt acts, and I take up these routes precisely in the order in which they were proved by the prosecution. First, I take up route 34149. Now, let us see where we are. The first charge is that we filed false and altered petitions by Peck, Minor, Vale, and Rudell. When did we file them? The indictment charges that we filed them on the 10th day of July, 1879. When did the evidence show they were filed? On the 3rd day of April, 1878. That is a fatal variance and that is the end eternal everlasting of that overt act. Without taking into consideration the fact that every petition was true and genuine, the petitions were not sent by the persons as charged. It was presented by Senator Saunders, and that is the absolute end of that overt act, and you have no right to take it into consideration any more than if nothing had been said upon the subject. Second, that on the 10th of July a false oath was placed upon the records. 
Now that is an overt act, and you know as well as I do that the description of that must be perfect. If they say it is one date, and the evidence shows that it is of another, it is of no use. It is gone. They say, then, that a false oath was filed. When? On the tenth day of July. Suppose the oath to have been false. When was it filed? The evidence says April 3, 1879. That is the end of the false oath, no matter whether that oath is good or bad. No matter whether they committed perjury or wrote it with perfect and absolute honesty, it is utterly and entirely worthless as an overt act. Third, an order for expedition, July 10, 1879, alleged to have been made by Brady. As a matter of fact, the order was signed by French. There is a misdescription. No matter if Brady told him to sign it, it was not a matter of fact signed by Brady. It was signed by French. They described it as an order signed by Brady. It is an order signed by French, and the misdescription of variance is absolutely fatal, and you have no more right to consider it than you have the decree of some empire long since vanished from the earth. Now, this is all the evidence on this route. That is all of it, with the exception of who received the money, and I will come to that after a while. That is Route 34149. According to their statement in the indictment, holding them by that, there is not the slightest testimony. We can consider that route out. We have only eighteen now to look after. That is the end of that. It has not a solitary prop. Upon the roof of that route, not a shingle is left, not one. End of Ingersoll's Closing Address to the Jury in the First Star Route Trial, Part 1 of 7 Read by Roger Moline